Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Father, we just humble ourselves before you under the authority of your word. And we want to continue to worship now in this manner as we submit our hearts, our soul, our mind, our spirit to the very voice of you as the living God taking your word and speaking into our lives in personal and direct ways. So Lord, as an act of worship, we just submit ourselves to you. Please give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. Prepare us each accordingly, Lord, and speak to us all in a personal and a direct way by your Spirit's ministry. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, in our lives, I think we all need to beware and be careful of striving after what we desire. When you look up the word striving, it's defined as making great efforts to achieve or to obtain something or also translated to struggle or fight vigorously for something or to bring something to pass. And let me just say, don't misunderstand me. If we are striving to faithfully serve the Lord, to resist sin, to uh, do what pleases God, that's okay at times, certainly. However, if we were all to be honest, so often we can start to strive after things due to our own human ideas and our own human desires. And often striving after things to really please ourselves or to get what we want because of some desire or idea or preference we have. And we may honestly strive to obtain something sometimes that perhaps God may not even want for us. And here we are striving after it and vigorously fighting to make it come to pass. And we end up actually striving against God, striving against God's will or God's ultimate purposes. And as a result of that, usually then we start to struggle with any people who get in our way from bringing to pass what it is we're actually striving for. And life, when that happens, when that's taking place, life tends to be marked by some things. It tends to be marked by conflict. It tends to be marked by compromises that we start to make. And it also tends to be marked by a lack of prayer and by a lack of understanding what the purpose of prayer really is. 
and how God has given it to us as a gift for right purposes and not for wrong motives. And this is really the issue and the error that James now is trying to address in this next section to give us some instruction about. Remember the backdrop he just mentioned in chapter 3, which I think pertains to where he now goes in chapter 4 as the continuity of the letter goes on. James has just talked to us about the difference between reasoning processes and the comparison between right and healthy reasoning processes or how we would handle things and as well how there are wrong ways of reasoning things out and wrong ways of relating to people and reasoning through things in our decisions and James said to us if there is the presence within us in our hearts of unhealthy things like bitter envy and a self-seeking attitude James says when that's the case and that way of reasoning or that way of functioning he says listen that doesn't come from God because the Bible says that's the work of the flesh and God's not going to lead us according to things that are of our flesh and he says that kind of reasoning and way of handling things it's sensual it comes from our human desires and senses he says it's just a worldly mindset and he says sometimes quite frankly it's even just demonic it's just the devil manipulating our minds and causing us to think in wrong ways and when that way is operated in he says when there's worldly sensual demonic thinking and reasoning going on he says it always produces confusion and the presence of every evil thing that's the result of it. Just an atmosphere of confusion and all types of evil things start to happen. Now, he says to us, God's wisdom, he said as well, is also available if we ask for it. And if we operate according to God's wisdom, then we're going to do what's pleasing to the Lord. We're going to live in a right way, which is healthy and helpful. And the last thing James just said as we closed off chapter three was that when we're operating in God's wisdom... The result of that, the byproduct, is when we reason things out by God's wisdom, it will lead us to have a peaceable attitude. There'll be a gentleness in our spirit, a willingness to yield to other people at times, and the fruit of a life that's lived righteously and that will continually look for ways to bring about peaceable solutions when situations arise that will long to see peace for the honor and the glory of God. Well, James now, with that statement i think goes right now into chapter 4 verse 1 by saying therefore he says in essence where do wars and fights come from among you so james asks a provoking question and it's meant for self-evaluation he asks this question here where the idea is from what origin he's saying from what source or what's the cause or the reason that wars and fights happen among you. He says, where's this stemming from? Now, when we look at the two terms he uses there, wars <clears throat> refer to large-scale ongoing conflicts that are the product of multiple battles over the same thing again and again and again. It's a series of constant battles and, and, and so forth going on that, that stems into what we would call a prolonged war over something. And wars can happen certainly on, on a national or international level. Wars can happen among people groups. Uh, wars can happen, quite frankly, I've seen among families. Uh, wars, to make it more sad, actually sometimes even I've seen happen among churches. Uh, and wars are something that just cause people typically uh, to, to really be in a place where what happens is this, is you have one side 
that feels very strongly that they are right and they are entitled and they are correct and they are compelled to win that at all costs. And so they'll keep launching battle after battle and keep you know, battling it out because they believe that their agenda is right and they're entitled to something. Now, he also mentions the presence of not just wars, but he says, how about fights? Now, a fight is a term that describes more of an individual one-on-one brawl. A fight something that happens between two people, typically. Two people are, are, are wanting to have their way and hurt one another in some form. So tension and anger arises between two people who then end up disputing or arguing, maybe even physically harming each other. And the purpose of a fight really is to what? It's to release frustration. It's to get your own way uh, and really to wound the other person in the process. And maybe right now you are engaged in sort of an ongoing war with something in your life. Maybe recently there has been some fighting that's going on in your experience And the question James is saying is, what do you think the reason for that is? Where do you think that's actually stemming from? Maybe even the fight that just happened before you came here this morning. And no, I'm not a prophet. I just know what happens sometimes even on Sunday mornings. Where does this come from? He says, what's the reason for these fights or the ongoing fights or the battles? Where's the fighting stemming from? Well, the Bible answers. Verse 1, look at it. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. James is saying, is it not true that the source of conflict is usually due to the strong desires raging within us that make us want to have our way? And because we want our way, and we want what is going to please us. You want something for yourself, and that's why you're willing to strive or fight for it. And you're willing to do whatever is necessary to, in a sense, get the self-satisfaction of being right or winning the argument or proving your point or, or having your way in the particular matter. Maybe there's the presence of some unmet desire within your life and it actually causes you to get angry because that desire is not being met and so it makes you contentious and, and, and willing to battle or fight over it. Maybe you want some desire to be satisfied for your own fulfillment or maybe you're just not pleased about something and you want it to change. And you want your expectation to be met. And because your expectation is not met, it causes you to, in a sense, have this brewing battle within. And it drives us to want to, as James says here, it drives us to want to please ourselves. And as we're driven to please ourselves, we become contentious with other people. This is what starts to happen. Notice, if you would, the Bible tells us very honestly in verse 1 that the original source of the conflict And what it's saying is we engage in conflict with one another. We get in fights with our friends or our spouse or our our siblings or other people in the body of Christ or we get in arguments or disputes. And he says that's a conflict. But he says, where's the original source of the conflict? He says the original source of the conflict, verse 1, he says actually is a battle we're fighting within ourselves. Do you see what the text says there? He says these come from your desires for pleasure that were inside of you. In your own members. Now, to me, this is very insightful that we have, all of us, bodily desires, natural desires for all types of things, the way God's created us. We have normal desires 
bodily appetites and we want to indulge and experience the fulfillment, the pleasure and satisfaction of those normal desires. We also have, on top of bodily desires, we have emotional desires. We want to be, uh, you know, in a sense, experiencing acceptance or maybe we want attention or we want approval. And there are these different emotional desires that we have and within our human bodies there are natural normal desires and then the reality is there's also mixed within us as fallen creatures some wrong desires and perversion of wrong desires and desires that are taking outside of God's boundaries or desires where we have an unrealistic expectation and an unrealistic longing with a natural desire and so all of a sudden you have normal desires and then you have a mixture of wrong desires for wanting to please ourselves. and as a result within guess what you have you got a battle going on inside of yourself and so that's why sometimes as people we say I feel all conflicted within that's biblical I feel all conflicted within and sometimes people they're all stirred up and they're you know angry and contentious and agitated and there's all these you know things raging within us why because we want our desires met we want to be fulfilled we want to be satisfied we want to have our way we want to be pleased and 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 receive and get what we want and sometimes it's that internal battle that's going on within us because of our desires that then spills over into our attitude and our actions towards other people and then it ends up being that seeking to please ourselves is what causes strife and conflict as we interact with others and this is where James is reminding us where the battle begins. He says, because we want something, we then strive against those who won't give us what it is that we desire or won't give us or help us to get what we're after. And I think by way of application, whenever we find ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, involved in fights and conflicts or some big ongoing war, I think we have to be willing to humbly evaluate the reasons why. And maybe sometimes even take a little ownership if perhaps we are just being a bit selfish. Imagine that. I don't understand why we're fighting. Could you imagine if it possibly was that I'm just a little bit selfish? And that it actually is selfishness. My own driving desire to want to have my way or, or get what I want. And, and, and I think we need to take ownership. The Bible here points that often that's what it is. The conflict within leads to the conflict without as we strive and fight with others. He then says, verse 2, you lust and you do not have. You murder, James says, and covet and cannot obtain you fight and you war so he's addressing how there are times as people where we fiercely i mean fiercely strive and struggle to get what we're after and yet we still he says there we still cannot obtain it we're still not able to achieve what we want or to receive what we're after and it always begins with notice he uses strong terms there a strong lust or craving the ideas for something we don't have and because we have such a strong yearning for it, James uses a bunch of adjectives there. He says, we covet and we, we fight and we become murderous and we'll go to war for it. We're willing to do whatever it takes to obtain what we want. Even, here's the sad part, even harming other people along the way if that's what it takes to get what I want. 
even being willing to disregard, to, in a sense, crush people, harm people, destroy people, whatever it takes, because we want it so badly, we're willing to destroy people even to get what we want. And the reality is in this room this morning, I am absolutely certain we all have at least probably one story where we've seen how sometimes, sadly, that transpires. We see somebody who they crave something so badly. They want it so badly. They are honestly willing to, to, to hurt and harm anyone who stands in their way of getting it. This happens with people, sadly, sometimes with substance abuse issues. And they become so addicted to a substance, literally, they will hurt, harm, destroy, rob, rip off their own family members, right? Be, to get what they have got to have for themselves. This happens when people become selfish in, in marriages. I've watched people, sadly, tragically. They're willing to destroy their spouse, destroy their children, because they want to be happy in some relationship with another person. They'll ruin their, they'll destroy their whole family. They just want to have what they want. And again, in so many different ways, sometimes when somebody has such a longing, the sad thing is, is willing to go to war or just wanting to be so right that they will just keep launching battle after battle and they won't wave the white flag of surrender. They are not going to let that war stop. They will launch one more battle because eventually they're going to win the war. They're going to win that war. They're going to prove that they're not... The, and, and again, this... Because it's a sad thing. Sometimes, despite how fiercely he says here, however, verse 2, we strive to get something. James says, sometimes we fiercely try so hard and then yet still, imagine that. He says, you still can't obtain it, verse 2. You still come up empty-handed, unable to achieve what we're after, obtain our desire. And perhaps, again, perhaps we can relate to this. Perhaps you can relate to maybe recently or at some point in your life, boy, you were striving after something or maybe right now you are striving and trying and doing everything you can to make what you want come to pass or to get what you want or to have your way and you still can't obtain it. It still just keeps slipping through your grasp and you just have not been, I mean, you are striving so hard to get it. You are doing everything you can and, and, and yet still you haven't got it yet. You still haven't obtained it. And the frustration and the letdown that comes along with that, well, look what James goes on to say in verse 2. He says, yet you do not have, you haven't obtained, because, look at it there, you do not ask. Now watch what James is doing here, showing the foolishness of human striving and showing the incredible value of prayer of asking God, of seeking God instead of striving in the flesh so hard to get what we want, to have our way, to make something come to pass. And James says sometimes the reason that we don't obtain what we're after, he just simply says it's prayerlessness. We won't stop striving and sincerely ask God to supply what it is we desire. I mean, it is phenomenal as people, when we have a desire that's unmet or something that we want to see fulfilled or come to pass, we will strive. I mean, we will strive, work ourselves to the bone, effort and energy and, and throwing everything, even harm and attack other people in pursuit of it. Yet for some reason, for some reason, we're, we aren't willing to humbly just go to God and ask God to do it. 
and ask God to bring it to pass and, and, and to actually give God a chance to work and believe He can actually do it in His will and in His way and in His timing. And sometimes God purposely won't allow something to come to pass simply because we aren't asking Him for it. And we're not willing to let Him be the one to fulfill it. Or let him be the one to accomplish it or to do it or to supply it. And so sometimes God will allow us to continue to come up empty-handed, empty-handed. And we are, I've tried everything. God goes, right, except ask me. And sometimes God will allow us to come up empty-handed to show us the reason you don't have is because you're not asking me for it. You're not letting me do it. You keep trying to accomplish it. You keep trying to bring it to pass. You keep trying to fulfill it. Well, I think this is a great exhortation to us all. If we ever considered sometimes maybe just stopping, whatever it is, stop striving, stop scheming, stop chasing, stop manipulating, stop conniving and doing everything you can to bring it to pass somehow in your own strength or ingenuity, and just humbly retreat and sincerely ask God. And get serious about this thing that so often as Christians we dismiss so casually called prayer. Asking God. Looking to God. Seeking God. And fully depending that He is able to do it. And waiting upon the Lord. And keeping our hands off. You know, one man said before, a life of faith is living without scheming. And just genuinely asking God, believing He can do it in His way and in His timing, and trusting God to handle our heart's desire, and then giving Him a chance to work while we keep our hands off. When we have desires, we need to bring them to God and seek Him for it, to learn how to depend upon God to supply. Oh, to learn how to depend upon God to do things, to look to God for things. And if it's God's will, he will grant us our heart's desire. The Bible tells us in Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Again, the idea there, trusting the Lord, committing it to the Lord, letting him grant the desires of our heart if those desires are in accordance with his will because God desires us to experience relationship. And so he wants us to live dependently upon him, to communicate to him. He doesn't want us to become self-sufficient. He doesn't want me to be someone who's thinking that if I just work this angle or do this or do that, somehow I can bring it to pass. He wants to take care of us. Like a father, he loves us. And so he wants us to live dependently upon him like a child. And is it possible, perhaps this morning, you've not obtained or do not have something simply because maybe, maybe you have tried every avenue in the flesh and you've tried every avenue. You've even borrowed other people's roadmaps for the flesh. And you have tried every avenue in the flesh, but you have refrained from asking God in faith and believing that asking God in faith is sufficient. 
and that God can do it apart from your helper involvement and that he can bring it to pass like a good father. Why not give God a chance to answer and act? Jesus tells us directly in Matthew 7, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He said, whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be open. And then he goes on to say, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask, to those who come to him? Oh, the glorious experience of learning how to ask God for what's on your heart. There is nothing more wonderful, I think, at times in my life that I've experienced before when the times when I genuinely have gone to God dependently and just said, Lord, you need to work in this situation. Lord, you need to make this come to pass. Or, or Lord, there's nothing I can do. Lord, you have got to come through. Lord, you've got to provide. Lord, you've got to change this situation. You've got, and to just bring it to God and genuinely just do nothing else than pray and then watch God work and see God do it. And realize the marvel that his awesome God condescends and listens to us in personal ways. Well, to balance out really what's being added there in verse 2, James, I think, puts verse 3 in. And this is, the again, the Holy Spirit giving biblical balance to prayer. Because look what he then says. He says, you don't have sometimes just because you didn't ask. In other words, he's saying, if you would have just asked, God would do it for you. God wants to do things. God wants us to ask. There are things maybe that God wants to do that he's not doing because we haven't asked him yet. And God's saying, just ask. I want to do things. But lest we misinterpret that, James then goes on by the Holy Spirit to say, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. So notice the Holy Spirit gives us a biblical balance here and shows that sometimes even when we do ask God for things in prayer, there may be occasions where we don't receive what we've asked for and the reason is because our prayer is not in accordance with the will of God. And it's important that we understand both sides of this. Despite how passionate we can be in our plea, God may withhold what I want. God may withhold what I desire or what I'm asking for. One mistake when we pray sometimes we can make is he says here in verse 3 is that we can ask amiss. That is, we can ask incorrectly. We have a wrong or mistaken way of asking or a wrong or mistaken motive or reason for asking. We may ask for things, the Bible says here, sometimes just to indulge our own self-pleasure, to get what we want, irregardless of what God's will is. It's just what we want. It would please us. Or irregardless of what effect it would have upon others. That is, trying to use God to obtain what we want for a self-serving reason. You know, one translation renders this verse here. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your whole motive is wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Again, the focus of our request sometimes, even when we pray, can have an underlying agenda. And sometimes we may have our agenda and the agenda is, I just want to have things go my way. And so I'm going to do what I can regardless of God's will or others' interests. And even in my prayer, the Bible is trying to tell us our prayer requests sometimes can even be selfish. We can have wrong prayer requests. Listen, prayers which are led by my human spirit rather than being led and directed by the Holy Spirit. That's why Romans 8 tells us one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is also even to help us 
in our prayer lives. He says in Romans 8, we don't know the things that we ought to ask for, but the Spirit who dwells within us helps us, even in our prayer life. It's a wonderful thing when you pray personally or if you pray together. Father, we just ask as we come to you in prayer that your Holy Spirit would help us as we pray. And we want to lay out our hearts or our desires before you, but we ask that your Spirit would direct us. And listen, we should never be hesitant to pray, but we have to trust that when we pray, God operates like a father. And I don't, my kids can come to me and ask for the moon. They haven't gotten it yet, but they can ask for it. If I can afford it, I might give it to them. I don't know. I like my kids. But they ask for whatever they want. They come to me, they're open and requesting, but they also understand the relationship. And again, we have to be careful because sometimes when we pray, even as Christians, we can almost use our prayers kind of like a cover-up for an unhealthy thing that's going on in our own life. Sometimes we can use spiritual speech to even hide fleshly and sinful desires or wrong desires. Why pray about it? So? <laughs> Why don't understand? Well, I mean, I know this guy. I'm dating him. And I mean, yes, he's, I mean, he only carries a gun on the weekend now. He's getting better. But I prayed about it. Well, listen, just because you pray about something doesn't mean it's God's will. And here he's saying, don't use prayer as a cover-up. We have to remember the purpose of prayer is not to get what we want. It's not to get our will done. And sadly, even some of the teaching that exists in the church and some of the ideas that are out there really give a out-of-balance perspective on prayer. We are never to try and force God to comply with what we want or think or what should be done for us as if somehow we're, we're praying, trying to, to use God like he's a, a cosmic genie of some sorts. And that if we just rub God the right way, we get our wish. And this idea is conveyed sometimes almost in, in teachings and in certain ideologies even among the church today where the idea is if you just you know, say it in a certain way or get worked up enough or claim certain things or use Jesus' name that almost like if you just rub God the right way like a cosmic genie eventually goes, oh, I mean, yeah, they said the name. I got to do it now. I don't want to, but I mean, I got to grant the wish. They rubbed the bottle. That's a very low view of God, you see? We should never have an attitude of prayer like God is some divine vending machine. And we can just order whatever we want and he, you know, he has to deliver whatever we order. And, and again, should we be passionate when we pray? Yes, nothing wrong with being passionate. But we never want to become demanding of God or begin to command somehow God must work in some way because we claim it. The purpose of prayer is never to get my will done. The purpose of prayer is to discover God's will and see God's will come to pass on the earth as it is in his heart in heaven, to seek God, to ask him to do things, what would be pleasing to him, like Jesus, Jesus himself, our example in the flesh, in all things. Father, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is to be the attitude of prayer. We bring God our desires, we share our thoughts, we, we, we're open. Again, can we be very passionate? Yes. My mentality is ask for the stars, but then just accept whatever God allows humbly because God's sovereign. And so we can be passionate, but we always want what we ask. Lord, if it's within your will, we're asking this. And again, we don't always know God's will. So there's nothing wrong with being passionate. 
we always need to be careful we don't reduce God to this very low view where somehow, like I said, he's like a vending machine that we can force him or that he has to act in some way. Uh, again, through prayer, we understand God's will and we participate in seeing God's will come to pass because our prayers come in alignment with what God is wanting to perform. And, and that's why our prayers matter. Because as we pray, God answers lovingly in response. The Bible is filled with indications that our prayers matter and God answers prayer. But it's our prayers that help facilitate and see the will of God comes to pass. But always know this, our God reserves the right to say no. Just like any good father should sometimes, if they love their children, say no, God's a father. And so James says here, sometimes we ask and we don't receive because we've asked amiss that we want to, in a sense, spend it on our own pleasure fulfillment. We have a wrong motive and, and God is comfortable enough in who he is. And I am so thankful for this to say no when it's needed. To tell me no if my desire or my prayer is wrong if we don't pray properly for a wrong motive or reason or if we're just asking for wrong things. God loves us enough to tell us no and he may at times not give me what I'm asking for if he knows that no is the better answer for me. If it's the safer thing or to be in accordance with his will. God may not give anything if at times he sees it would not benefit us and value our relationship with the Lord or bringing about his purposes. And listen, listen, God is never going to answer any prayer with a yes that contradicts the word of God or is in contradiction to his clear and revealed will. And we should be thankful for that. God is not a pushover. He's, he's pretty strong and he's pretty secure in himself. And I'm thankful for a God like that. It makes me feel very comfortable that I can come just pour out his heart to him just like my children. They just pour out their hearts and they trust that I love them and I'm wise enough to say yes and no properly. They may not already even agree with my yes or no's, but they trust because of the love relationship and who I am that that's the right answer in that situation. And the same with us and God that we can come to him. What a wonderful blessing and balance to this thing we call prayer. Verse 4, James gets a little more direct. He then says, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James also warns here of another danger, which is striving against God himself. Not just striving with others, but striving against God himself. And the way he points it out is by becoming too connected to or overly involved with the world. And what he means there is the world system. The fallen world system. He's giving a warning in verse 4 here, basically, of becoming what we would call worldly. You know, we, we have this lingo among Christians. Be careful, man. Don't become, we don't want to become worldly where we love the system of the world. When we start to flirt with the things of the world and become a little too enamored by what the world is offering to us and we want to be too friendly with the affairs of the world or we never stand in opposition to the world because we're standing in solidarity with God instead at times, James says when we do this, we can begin to operate like an enemy of God. And the reason for this is because God doesn't endorse the ways of this current world. The Bible tells us in 1 John 5 that the world system is under the sway of the wicked one. That there is an unseen spiritual evil that's, in a sense, governing the ways of this world, its system, its ideologies, its patterns, its philosophies, what's going on. So the ways of the world and its fallen condition 
are diametrically opposed to the ways of God. They don't operate in harmony together at all. They're not in friendship. Oftentimes the world opposes the ways of God. Did you ever notice that? So that's why 1 John 2 says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, that is love for God, is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but of the world and the world is passing away. And this is important for us because sometimes as God's people, we can become guilty of being too closely connected with the ways of the world. We can start to become a worldly Christian, in a sense, choosing worldly things over closeness with God. And that's typically what happens. When we get too entangled in the affairs of the world or the ways of the world or what the world has to offer to us, sometimes we choose worldly things over closeness and deeper fellowship with God himself. And when that starts to happen and we engage in close participation with the world system in violation, listen, in violation to our relationship and commitment with the Lord, look what this says here. From God's perspective, he views it like committing spiritual adultery. He says there, verse 4, adulterers and adulterers. That's strong language. But it's meant to drive home a picture of the depth of violation of our love relationship with God. When we love and participate in wrong things and betray our commitment to the Lord, from his heart, from his heart, it's like committing adultery on a spiritual level with our relationship with him. The same pain and betrayal that is felt in human relationship when adultery happens in a marriage, the Bible saying that same kind of pain is what's caused to the heart of our Lord when we're unfaithful to him. So James says, verse 5, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, worthlessly, that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? So James reminds us here, when we give our devotion to things that belong to God and give our devotion and attention to other things instead of God, he says very clearly in verse 5 here that God actually gets jealous, which shows that there is a healthy form of jealousy there's a proper form of jealousy in love God is fiercely protective of his right to have exclusive dedication from me to him he's very jealous of my love for him and my attention for him he loves you tremendously and he wants your love in response that you would be his first love and that you would never let anything or anyone come between you and him when our loyalty to God is violated by giving our love and attention to something else or to someone else instead of God, it causes God an experience of jealousy. And this is a painful thing because the spirit, the very presence of God is dwelling right within us as we're doing these things. He says the spirit who dwells within us. When we entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ the day we got saved, it was like entering into a marriage relationship, the Bible says, where Jesus is the groom, we're the bride, and to make it very personal, his spirit actually came inside of us as a result of inviting Jesus into our lives. The spirit dwells within us in this love relationship. And whenever we're unfaithful to the Lord by giving devotion or dedication to things that belong to him, and we give that devotion and dedication that should go to the Lord to something else or to someone else, the heart of the Lord yearns with a loving jealousy within us. There's a jealousness that happens, even as a husband would feel jealousy if their wife spent time with someone else 
instead of them? If my wife said to me, well, yes, I want to be married to you, but I just enjoy spending time with him more. I'd be a bit jealous. I'm your husband. I should have your foremost attention. I should have your complete dedication. I want all of your affection. We have a love relationship. And see, this is the idea here. When we give attention, dedication, devotion to other things instead of to the Lord, we actually cause a, an experience of jealousy. Now think about this. The fact that God is jealous for your love and affection and devotion and attention, that's an incredible indication of how much He loves you. How important you are to God. How much value you have to God that He's actually jealous for your attention. He's so in love with you that when other things become more important to you than Him, it actually causes Him to feel an experience of jealousy. One commentator said this, The Spirit within jealously guards our relationship to God and the Spirit is grieved when we sin against God's love. A good moment for evaluation this morning. Has anything or anyone come in between you and your relationship with the Lord recently? Be honest. Has maybe striving after something that you're chasing after, that some goal or just something very important, has striving after something caused you to stray from your relationship with the Lord and that being the first thing in your life? There are times that we can be guilty of this. Is it possible you violated your relationship or commitment with God in order to participate in some other thing? In a sense, you sinned against God's love. You've betrayed the heart of your Lord. Well, the question becomes this. If and when we've done that, and at times we all do, what do we do? When we've betrayed the heart of our Lord and, in a sense, gone out in the Lord and, and given our love to something or someone else that really exclusively belonged to the Lord and we know that we've done this, what do we do? Well, despite the Lord's heartbreak, look what James says in verse 6. But he gives more grace. How wonderful to know that's the heart of the Lord amidst my failures, amidst our spiritual betrayal of the Lord at times, that his heart towards us is he's not looking to cast us aside. He's not looking like an angry boyfriend to just cut us off. I said, I'm done with you. You want to spend time with him? I'm done with you. That's more important to you now than spending time with me? That's it. It's over between us. His attitude is completely the opposite. He shows us further measures of his grace being kind towards us though we hurt his heart. That though we broke his heart, he wants to show us more grace. Perhaps recently you've been erring spiritually. Maybe you have failed the Lord recently in some way in your life. And maybe you really want to turn back to the Lord, but perhaps you're worried about how he feels towards you. Well, listen, the Bible shows you right here. This is how he feels towards you. He wants to give you more grace. He wants to give you grace. And maybe you're beating yourself up and you're thinking, oh, he's got to be done with me. I've failed him. I've, I've betrayed the Lord. I've betrayed his heart. No, no, listen. Who hasn't? He wants to give you grace. He's got more grace still. He's got more grace to extend to you. Perhaps it's more grace than you've ever experienced before. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. When you look at the language there, he gives more grace. It's in the present tense, meaning he continually gives more grace on an ongoing basis. That's the heart of God. 
That's the attitude of Jesus. Even in our failure, he always gives more grace. I love John 1 where regarding the life and the work of Jesus, it says in Jesus there is grace upon grace. I think the analogy there so fitting is like the unending ocean waves if you go down to the shoreline. And just one wave keeps coming in after another. And no matter how many waves come, there's always another wave still coming. It's an unceasing supply. There's never an end to it. There just continues to be this limitless resource and one wave coming after another. And that's a picture of His grace. Here comes a wave of grace. Sometimes it's waves of grace. They just like knock us over, don't they? And you feel like you're drowned in His grace and all of a sudden you blow it again. Here comes another one. Are you kidding me? Yes. This is a tidal wave this time. It's a tsunami. But just the ocean, such a picture, grace upon grace, wave after wave, grace upon grace, can continue to go to Him. Our role is to be humble recipients of His grace. That's our part. To believe it's true. Hebrews 4, 6 says, Therefore let us come boldly, confidently, listen, to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. For some of you this morning, perhaps today, you need to believe that. You need to receive it. You need to go to a stone of grace and say, Lord, I know I don't deserve it, but I receive that you have more grace for me by faith, believing in who you are. Well, as it pertains to this opportunity to receive grace for failure, James then concludes in verse 6 by saying, Therefore, he says, quoting Proverbs 3, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Take notice there. Our attitude of our heart can and will determine what we receive from God in these kind of times. He points to two attitudes of our heart. He says, if our heart is proud and stubborn, then God will resist us in life. The word resist only means to battle against. If my heart is stubborn, if your attitude is proud, God doesn't notice. He doesn't just refuse or withhold grace. That'd be bad enough. He doesn't just hold back grace. It literally says God works in opposition to us. When our heart is proud and stubborn, God doesn't just hold back his grace. He actually puts his hand out against our forehead and works in resistance to us. And he opposes everything we do while we're being proud. Now on the other side of that, he says if our heart is repentant and humbled before God and we surrender, then his grace is poured forth like rivers of living water. His grace is dispatched to those who are in a humble condition, in a rewarding way, he kindly blesses and helps and gives us gracious assistance. I always think of verse 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble uh, of this way. If you can give me your attention visually. I always think of this way. Which way do I want God's hand towards me? Do I want God to be like this? Or I want God to be like this? When I'm proud and God says, you want to be proud? Go for it. <laughs> See how that works. But when we humble ourselves and we're repentant and broken and we humble ourselves and just sincere before the Lord, then his hand goes like this and says, I've been waiting to be gracious to you. I have all kinds of grace for that, to help with that, to forgive that, to work in that situation, to answer good questions today. Are you striving? Are you striving? Are you striving against God? When we strive in human pride and stubbornly try and get our way and won't take ownership of our error and become like that, listen, we end up battling against God and that's a battle that will never be won. Never be won. 
But the wonderful thing is, is the moment we humble ourselves, we admit our error, we take ownership, we acknowledge our mistake, we say, God, I, I just have your way. I'm done, Lord. I, I don't want my way. My, I don't, I don't, Lord, you choose. I don't want my way. Please, I don't want my way anymore. Lord, you just have your way in this. I submit that invites a flood of his grace to come pouring into your life. Today, my encouragement will be stop striving. Just submit. Submit to the Lord and let his grace flow into your life. Would you pray with me?